I'd like to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 29. Genesis chapter 29. Last week we looked at chapter 28 and we saw how on his road to find a wife, Jacob had some surprises. He encountered the Lord on his trip. God coming to him and revealing himself to Jacob in a way that was so personal and so profound that Jacob never the same. He has another meeting with God where God touches his body and gives him a physical, a physical difficulty which changes him for a long time. But I want to talk to you this morning about blessings and challenges in your life with God. You know, when a person meets God, it has an effect on them. It causes us to never be the same. C.S. Lewis became an atheist when he was very young and then in middle age he became a Christian. And he was surprised by the way it affected his life. It was it was more than he thought it was going to be. He'd been around Christians, but he, didn't, he wasn't himself a Christian. He wasn't a possessor of the divine nature. And he was surprised by how profoundly it affected him and how it made him joyful. Joyful. R.C. Sproul became a Christian while he was in college. And his own testimony was that becoming a Christian affected his life in a powerful way. It didn't make his life a lot easier, but it made his life more difficult because there are more things to think about. There's a reality that he had to live with. I've thought about this lots of times. It must be horrible to be a doctor because you wake up and you got an ache in your body, got a pain, and automatically you start self-diagnosing. Is this pain connected to, you know, the deterioration in my elbow? Is my knee going out? And then I thought about what if he gets a pain and the metallic taste in his mouth. Ever had that happen? Get a pain in your arm and get, that, get a taste in your mouth? Then sometimes that can be a symptom of a stroke, you know. But oftentimes it's just nothing. It's not, not a big deal. Being a doctor having, having to live with that kind of reality. You guys, I don't know if you guys remember this show. I, think, I don't know if it's still on television or not. We saw a few episodes of it way back when it first came out uh, on TV. It was uh, about those guys in... Las Vegas, and they, they were, they, the, the crime scene investigators, I think it was called, CSI. And there was these uh, guys who got into a fight and, uh, in a bar, and somebody got sucker punched in the back of the head while he had his back to the rest of the guys. He got punched in the back of the head. And the guy had a little ring on his finger, and that punch separated the tissue at the back of his head and caused an artery to, to rupture and start to bleed. And the guy was bleeding to death internally, but had no idea. A guy just punched him, and he's like, hey, you know, they got into it, and then he went on, but he died because of that little blow to his head. And after that, I remember seeing the kids playing in the, in the, in the living room. I'd see them fall down and hit something. All I could think about was what, what I saw in that show. They're going to hit their head, and they're going to die, you know? Living with this knowledge has an effect on them, and that's what Sproul said. Now I'm living with this knowledge of this reality that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a Savior, there is a Satan, and he's dealing with these things. And I'm saying this to you because in Genesis chapter 29, we find Jacob living life after his conversion. And his new life as a follower of God is filled with both blessings and challenges. Your life as a Christian will automatically bring you some blessings, some big ones, and even some small ones, and some blessings that you will never see until the last day. But your life with God as a Christian will also bring you challenges, both small and great. As we look at chapter 3, we see these, chapter 29, we see three of these 
we see uh, we're going to look at this under three headings, three headings. And let's, uh, let's take the time to read 29. Read 29. Then Jacob went on his journey. He's just left the place that he's called Bethel, house of God. And he looked and behold, a, a, he saw a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. And a great stone was upon the well's mouth to prevent evaporation. And thither were all the flocks gathered. And they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep and then put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot, until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said, Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught or for nothing? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be done. It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, a.k.a. seven years. And we will give thee this also for the service which thou, for thou shalt serve me with yet seven other years. Friends, I want you to think about that seven years. Seven years is a long time. Seven years is a long time. Think about what life was like for you seven years ago, how many changes you've gone through in your life. Seven years. Seven years. Seven years ago, Lauren was 14 years old. Seven years ago, Mitchell was 11. Seven years ago, 
Matt was three, seven years ago. I was whatever age I was seven years ago. <laughs> seven years is a long time. And now we got 14 years on the table. You ever thought about it? You ever see somebody, oh, he only got three to five years in prison. So that's not too bad, friends. One month locked up in the pokey ain't no fun. Will you imagine having five to seven years locked up in the joint? Not me, buddy. I don't want any part of that. When they, when they bring out the handcuffs, and the police come around, I don't want to get locked up. I don't want to be locked up in a cell, you know. Whew. It makes my hands sweat thinking about it. In fact, the idea of getting put in the back of a police car makes, makes me feel a little bit clammy. And you guys remember when, cars, when there were a lot of two-door cars around, a lot of two-door cars? Remember riding in the back seat of a two-door car? He had to pull the seat forward and crawl back in there. Man, the, the very idea of getting back in one of those cars right now at this stage of my life, whew, makes my liver quiver. Seven years. Now here we have the marriage, 30, 31 to 35. We won't go into that because I'm going to preach a message about that next Sunday. But we know the Lord will add the blessing of the reading of his word to our ears and our hearts. Life after meeting God. There are those people who say, if you'll become a Christian, your life will be a lot better. Is that true? It is true. It will be much better in some ways, but it will not be without difficulties. Salvation is a wonderful thing because it is when a sinner is saved from God's just wrath by the blood of Jesus. All your sins are taken away. God does not know about them anymore. They've been removed from you. That's what happens when you become a Christian. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, they are happy. And the people who know them are happy too. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but if today you become a Christian, every person in your life who is a Christian will be thrilled that you've become a Christian. That you've become a Christian. There's joy in Christianity. Very often salvation makes a person's immediate life better because the way they're living, their life trajectory is realigned the moment they're born again. And the result of these blessings are, are evident. There is a realignment that takes place. A few, know, this is probably a month or so ago, Les and I had to go to Duncan for something. We drove to Duncan. And on the way over there, my car had a slight vibration. And I thought, it's just, it's just a Buick. It's a piece of junk, you know. And I thought, no big deal. We did our business. We were coming back to town. On the way back to town, it started riding rougher and rougher and rougher until the steering wheel is just jumping back and forth like crazy. By the time we got to Lawton, it was just, man, it was, I was really having to think about driving it. I dropped her off at school, drove back over here, you know, and never thought about it. But then I realized, you know, I bet I, bet I got a bad tire. So I, I looked at the tire. I could see where the cord had separated, you know, going bad. So I drove it over to Hibden Tire. That's where I buy my tires at lately. And had them put a, two new tires in the front of my, my van. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. I drove it in there. I drove out of there just as smooth as it could be. It was such a big difference. It actually caused me to... Start loving the Buick again. <laughs> and I don't have much love for that car. But it really made a difference. 
And when a person gets saved, when they become a Christian, there's kind of an automatic realignment that makes the ride of their life a little bit smoother. They start changing the way they do some things. They they may be able to finally break away from some habits or difficulties that are difficult. There are people in their life who, when they find out they're a Christian, are like, hey, I'm out. And their life kind of smooths out almost immediately. You see, when a person is born again, they start living new lives and the result is much better than their old life. In our story, Jacob has met the Lord at Bethel. He leaves there having committed himself to God and says, you're the one I'm going to serve. If you're watching out for me, I'm going to serve you. You're my God. And this This devotion to God with Jacob only grows deeper as his life goes on. But I want you to notice four things Jacob finds here. Four blessings. First of all, he finds the right people. (laughs) The right place. Because he's been traveling by foot from where he lived with his father in Gerar, northwards to Haran. Now it's different, different, the the numbers kind of, the exact location of Gerar sometimes is debated. But this is a foot journey of 500 miles. 500 miles. Now, friends, a 500-mile trip to you and I is nothing. We just say, we say to Siri, we say, driving directions to wherever. And she says, okay. Follow, and you just listen to her voice all the way. You say, well, I don't get into that kind of stuff. Well, you get out a road map, and you just look at the map, and you chart your way, and you follow the road signs, and you go where you want to go. No big deal. But in Jacob's day, there is no Siri. There is no, there's no uh, MapQuest. Is MapQuest still even around? <laughs> there is no MapQuest. There is, there is no GPS. There are, there's no Rand McNally. There's no AAA trip planner. It's just Jacob heading generally where he knows these people are, a place he's never been, a place his father hadn't been ever. And his dad's 140-odd years old. But he finds the right place. Isn't it a blessing to find the right place? You ever been on a trip? And you're gonna, even, even with our navigation devices, we're trying to find a place. And once you finally pull up there in front of you, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I found it. Because so many things can happen. He finds the right place. When he gets to the right place, he looks out and finds the right people right off the bat. I mean, he rolls up. And who does he run into? Exactly people who know the people he's looking for. And they say, look at here. Here comes Laban's daughter, Rachel, right now. He finds the right place. He finds the right people. I don't know if he realizes it or not, but he also has found the right girl right off the bat. He finds Rachel. He come there looking for a wife, didn't he? He's looking for a wife, and who comes walking up? Here comes Rachel, the girl he wants to marry. Finds the right girl. And then he's able to arrange to marry this girl. A lot of things are going in Jacob's way. I mean, it's just the dominoes are falling in his direction. It's just lining up perfectly. Don't you like it when life is like that? When things go right, when things go smooth, when things work out the way you want them to? It's so wonderful. But it's like owning stock, right? The price can't go up forever. <laughs> it's got to come down. So he has challenges. The life of a Christian is full of blessings, but it's not only blessings. There are also challenges in your life as a Christian. And some of our challenges in our Christian life are sometimes self-caused. 
Sometimes we cause our own problems. Sometimes the problems and challenges are caused by the people in our lives who, over whom we have no control. Over whom we have no control. What surprises us often is that we who are Christians, we're, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to make the right decisions. We're trying to honor God, but we still have challenges. And the challenges are of all sizes. And that's what kind of surprises us and annoys us. We say, Lord, why must it be thus all the day long? While others are unmolested, though, in the wrong. And I'm just trying to do the right stuff. We get, we, we're surprised by that often. Some of the challenges that we face as Christians are really just residual effects of our past lives. You know what I mean? Because you have a life before Christ and a life after Christ. Your life before Christ can sometimes be a little bit sketchy. Think about a, a felon who becomes a Christian. And I've met a number of these. I was trying to buy some uh, insurance a few years ago, and this lady, she said, well, Pastor, I hate to ask you this question, but have you ever, you ever been convicted of a felony? And she said, no. I sh-, she said, no. She said, really, you know, you're a pastor. You probably never have. And I, well, I said, well, I never have. But I know a lot of pastors who were bad hombres and then got born again, and they had a past. All you got to do is look at the Bible and see that kind of thing. A guy who's a felon who becomes a Christian he still has to tick mark on the little application when it says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? He's still got to check yes. and still got to write it out. Explain why. Tell about what's going on in his past. Those are challenges of our past lives. And, and it can be something not like a felony. You know, if you've become a Christian, but you've been, you've been immoral and done things you shouldn't have done, you're, there's going to be some residual effects. God forgives you of all those sins, but there's still consequences to actions. Challenges come. Some challenges come to us as Christians because God wants them there. James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 and 4 tells us to rejoice when we come into various trials or diverse temptations. Because God is going to be doing something in our life, going to be creating patience in our life. Some challenges are planned by God to make us better. Planned to make us better. And in our chapter today, we see our friend Jacob, a guy who lied to his brother, his fa- lied to his father. He will be lied to by who? His father-in-law. <laughs> he that deceiveth shall be deceived, you might say. You reap what you sow. Even though Jacob is on the Lord's side now, he is going to have challenges in his life, and my friend, so will you. Challenges have to come into our life. We have to have challenges because our character must be tested. Our faith must be challenged. We have to exercise. We have to use our faith. We've got to put it in action. And sometimes these things are frightening. But we have to have challenges. We have to have difficulties. Yesterday, Leslie was with the Eisenhower track team over in Ardmore, and the, and the people are, are running races. And some of those Kids are so cotton-picking fast that they're racing against themselves, their previous self. They're trying to break their old time, their old personal best record. They're trying to go ahead. They're trying to get forward. They have to be challenged. You know, you can practice all day long. But you know, a game is where you really shine. 
I play basketball to a while a lot because I hate to exercise, and I play basketball because I forget I'm exercising while I'm playing basketball. I haven't got to play in a couple weeks now, but, you know, I, I run around the basketball court, and I shoot three-pointers, and I shoot free throws, and I make layups, and, and I, shoot, I, I try to make left-handed shots a lot because my right shoulder hurts a little bit, so I've been working on my left hand. You know, and I'm pretty good with my left hand. Eight, back, after 18 feet, I can, I, can, I can arc it in there pretty good. When nobody's playing me. <laughs> but you put another dude between me and the basket, and my left arm loses all power. <laughs> it's a challenge. You've got to be challenged. Your Christian life, you have to be challenged, but your faith has to be challenged. There has to be an opportunity to exercise faith. Challenges have to come because our character and faith must be tested. Difficulties have to come because sometimes... Difficulties actually reveal who the real Christians are. Mark 14, Mark chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Jesus talks about the seed that fell on soil that bared fruit immediately, but when hard times come, when persecution comes, they disappeared. Who the real Christians are. In John chapter 6, Verse 66, after Jesus said, you got to eat my blood, drink my blood and eat my body if you're going to have everlasting life. People said, we're out. They walked no more with him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us they went out from us because they were not of us. Talking about people who go into false doctrine. The challenge of false doctrine. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10, talks about a man named Demas. He says, he's really, he seems to be really upset by it. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's sad because Demas has been seduced by the world. Seduced by worldliness. Challenges reveal who the real Christians are sometimes. They test our faith. They're revelatory. Challenges and blessings. Let's talk about patience here. Patience in our life. Jacob needs a wife. Laban, he, he gets to know Jacob. The Bible says here that Jacob was with him for about a month. About a month. And you know, if somebody lives with you for a month, you know if you like him or not, right? You probably know if you like him or not within about two or three days. <laughs> a month's a long time. Laban likes Jacob. And he says, hey, if you're going to work for me, what should I pay you? What shall your wages be? And Jacob is smitten by Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he says something that really, it, it causes all kinds of thoughts in my mind. He says, I will work for her for seven years. Seven years. Jacob is 40 years old. And at 40, you have an, under, you have an appreciation of time that you don't have when you're 20. You understand time is limited. I'll give seven years for this girl. Why seven years? Well, Jacob, he's gotten to know Laban in 30 days, and he knows that Laban is a bad man. Laban is not a man of great moral character. Laban's a crook. In Genesis chapter 31, Rachel and Leah both complain about their father. That he's just selling them off to the highest bidder, treating them like property. He's not a great guy. But Jacob sticks around this guy because he loves Rachel. 
And my friends, when you love something, when you love someone, you'll put up with a lot of things because you love someone or because you love something. And Jacob didn't have any money. He arrives at Laban's house without any money. You say, well, how do you know he didn't have any money? I'm just, I'm, it's just a speculation. They didn't have credit cards back then or folding money. I don't think he made this long trip by himself with a sack full of gold because he would have got robbed. He didn't have much money. His, he was supposed to get a lot of money, you know, when his father dies, but his father didn't die. All that's still in his future. And when Jacob comes to Laban's house, he, he's, he's coming into a culture where it was customary for the groom to give a dowry to the girl's father. Now, some people call that the bride price. If you ever watch an old Western or something like that, you'll see some guy, you know, swapping some horses for a woman, buying and selling her. This is kind of the way it was in Jacob's day. So Jacob does not have money to pay for the privilege of having Rachel become his wife. So he offers time instead of money. If you guys ever get a chance to read the book called The Good Earth by uh, uh, Pearl Buck, in that story, there's a, a young farmer named Wang. Wang. And he wants to get married, but he's a poor farmer. He has land, but he didn't have much money. So his father arranges for him to marry, to purchase a female slave from some rich people down the street. And her name is, oh, the girl he buys is named Olan. And Wang, he, he goes down. He's so excited to be getting a wife. And when Olan comes out, this is funny, he was disappointed because she had really big feet. <laughs> In the Chinese culture, you know, they, they would, the, the, more, the higher classes would take a girl's feet when she was a baby and bind it up and break the bone so her foot would be like about a size four and a half, very small. And oftentimes the women, they couldn't even walk. It, it lamed them for life. But Olan... Olan, she had regular sized feet. Her feet were unbound. But that really worked out good because Olan is the source of his riches in the future. This woman who he underestimates. It's a great story. I recommend you take the time to read it. The Good Earth. Jacob, he has no money, so he offers time. And we all know what they say about time, right? Time is time is money. So Jacob, he looks at Rachel and he decides, how much is a woman worth? What price do you put on a woman? 30 days. <laughs> a month, two months, a year. No, Jacob loves her and he values her. He knows she's something special. She's beautiful. She's desirable. So he sets the price himself at what? Seven years. How do you think Rachel felt about that? Do you think she was flattered? Do you think that she was tickled? Do you think it really caused her to love Jacob? That's what I think it did. Seven years. He's willing to give seven years of his life for me. A lot can happen in seven years. A lot of things can take place. Seven years. He sets the price for seven years. This girl is worth seven years. Laban, he knows a bargain when he sees it. He says, deal. 
But then the day comes after seven years and Jacob gets his wife and Laban pulls the old switcheroo and gives Jacob Leah instead. And what happens here is Jacob is being wronged. Just because Jacob lied in his past doesn't mean that he deserves to be wronged now. This is a wrong that Laban does him. It's not justice. It's a wrong. Laban wrongs Jacob. But Jacob still wants Rachel. This is the thing that really tells us how much he loved her, is now he has a wife, he has Leah, and, his, and Laban says, work seven more years and I'll give you Rachel. What would you do in that situation? I would have took Leah and left town. I would have got out of there. Burn me once. Shame on you. Burn me twice. Shame on me. I wouldn't have stuck around. You can't trust this guy. What's he going to do the next time? Come up with a third daughter and pawn her off on me? But that's not what he does. He doesn't flip out. He doesn't leave town. What's going to keep him there in this crucible of suffering, of challenging times? What's going to keep him there? Love. Love is going to keep Jacob there. He loves her so much that he's willing to endure the wrong just so he can have her as his bride. What, that, that's love. He's gone from seven years now to 14 years. If you thought seven years was long, 14 years is twice as long, right? <laughs> Two times seven is 14. 14 years. And what Jacob does is he willingly gives seven more years for Rachel's hand. And this reminds me of something, friends. This reminds me of the love of Jesus for his bride, for his people. The New Testament presents the church, all of God's elect, as the people of God. And these are people whom Jesus loves and loves so much that before the world was formed in divine conference, Within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit decide to elect, redeem, and call sinners to salvation and to forgive their sins. But this great plan of redemption demands that somebody has to suffer. Somebody has to suffer. In order for Jacob to receive his bride, somebody has to suffer, and it's Jacob. Working. Grinding it out, persevering because he loves this girl. God's plan of redemption demanded that someone holy, someone who does not deserve to die, has to come down here and die as a substitute for sinners. And that's what Jesus has done. Jacob reminds me of Jesus suffering for his bride, love keeping him in the crucible of suffering. Jesus came into our world as one of us, the God-man, the eternal Son, becoming a man like you and I, enduring the contradiction of sinners. Think of the humiliation of Jesus coming down. He comes down and he's, he's in the womb of a woman. He's born just like you and I are. He grows just like you and I do, drinking from his mother's breasts. Wearing a diaper. Wearing a diaper. 
The one who said, let there be light. The one who said, sea over here, land over here. The one who hung the stars. The one who set up this delicate, I don't know if it's delicate, but this incredibly well-balanced ecosystem in this world. Wearing a diaper. Crawling around on the floor. Eating mashed up green beans from a wooden spoon. Coming way down. Going through his childhood. Growing, going through puberty. All these things. He came down and then living a poor man's life. Jesus wasn't born to wealthy people. A working man, a tradesman, a carpenter. Working in the shop. Making bowls and spoons, whittling, you know, cutting stuff. Making beans. I mean, this is what he's come down, he's come to come down here and lives that kind of life. Sweating and working. Never doing anybody wrong. And then when he begins his public ministry after his baptism, what does he do? He goes around doing miracles, blessing and helping people. And what happens to him? They... They arrest him, they abuse him, they accuse him. Then on Calvary, they assassinate him. And he did that so that sinners could be reconciled to God. So that sinners could be reconciled to God. What love? Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith in this, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Because when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ dying for us. To give us the blessings of salvation. To give to us the blessings of union with God. Union with God. Much more than being now justified by His blood. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ did be ye reconciled to God. For he, God, has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 1.20 Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him. By Jesus. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, he, Jesus, might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So this is what Jesus has done. He has come down and become our Savior because of love, love for his bride, love for his people. And he'll pay whatever price. If Laban had said, hey, it's going to be 14 more years. You know what Jacob would have said? Okay. Because he loved her. He loved her that much. And that's how much God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit love you. They love you that much to send, to send, him, to send Jesus into the world to bear your sins. You see, friends, Jesus died for sinners. He died for you. And he demonstrated for you and his death for you. He showed it. He did that so you could be reconciled to God without great works of righteousness and without excellent piety. Friends, have you ever thought about it? What, what kind of price could God have put on the salvation of your soul? What kind of price could he have put on it? He could have set it as high as he want. The seller sets the price, right? The seller sets the price. He could have been priced beyond our reach, but no, he brings it way down. Jesus died so that by faith in his power to save, you could become a child of God. And be the eternal object of God's affection. To be the bride of Christ. Brought into the family of God. But if you do not believe that Jesus died for your sins. If you do not entrust yourself to him alone. By faith alone. Then you will go to the lake of fire. There's no other place. Heaven is gained through the blood of Jesus. And hell is gained through your own self-righteousness. I was watching this little, yesterday, they, you know, up in Canada, they're having all these conflicts with these uh, churches. They're locking, locking them down, telling churches they can't meet for worship and that kind of thing. A guy on Twitter, he shared this little video of a, a group of Mennonites. And they were outside filming, and the police were coming to the church, and they're coming to, to lock the church down. And really what happened was they have a, a health and safety order where people cannot meet together at the church unless they follow guidelines and they've decided this church was violating the guidelines, not wearing masks, not keeping social distancing. And so the police were coming to shut down the service. They also brought a locksmith to change the locks on the doors because they're saying, you're not worshiping here anymore or until this pandemic is over, if it ever ends in Canada. So the, the, the police come into the auditorium and the people are all singing and uh, the police, the police come in, and you know they're all standing around. And and the pastor, he stops, and uh, the police, he gives the microphone to the police, and the policeman comes up and says, "Hey, we got to shut it down. It's the law, you know." And they're Mennonites, which means they're pacifist. They're Mennonites are basically modern day Anabaptists, and they say, "Okay," and so they turn it over, and the pastor. I, I guess they said that the. They had sent so many policemen, they blocked off all the roads around the church in the whole county because they, didn't, they thought that Christians would come down there and kind of start a little insurrection to resist this thing. And so there's a lot of police. And they, they showed a picture of the guy outside. There's police cars everywhere. 
probably 35 or 40 that I could see in, in the video. And the pastor goes outside and he starts preaching to all these police. And he starts telling them the gospel. And what really struck me, it put tears in my eyes, is here is a man who was being oppressed by the civil powers. And he, he cries out and he says, come and join us. Let's go to heaven together. <laughs> I was so struck by that. Come and join us. Let's go to heaven together. That, that, this is the Christian message. Come to Jesus and let's go to heaven together. I was just so struck by that. There's a guy under oppression in a challenging moment. Not flying off the handle, but seeing the right perspective here. Of course, God organizes and orchestrates all things according to his own purpose and plans. While those policemen probably never darkened the door of a church. (laughs) But the Lord, in allowing a church to be closed down, brings all these guys there to hear a preacher say, proclaim the resurrection. One more time. Come and join us. And let's go to heaven together. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let's go to heaven together. Let's go to heaven together. Father, we pray that you bless these words to our hearts. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.